4. I'm going to begin with a well-known verse of Scripture. Most of us have read before. If you've spent a significant amount of time studying Scripture, you've probably heard this. These are the temptations of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Let's pray this evening. Father, I thank you for your presence that is here today. I ask that you would speak to us, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would touch our spirits, that you would open our eyes to see with clarity the truth of your word this evening, O God. Be with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the Old Testament, there is a story about the life of Moses when the children of Israel were in the desert. Basically, they're stuck out in the desert, traveling from place to place and walking around and just kind of, you know, wandering in the desert for 40 years. And every single day, problems arose. Things came up. Issues happened. You got a couple of million people out in the desert. Um, there's not enough to do. There's not, uh, there's only, the only food is manna and quail and water from a rock. They couldn't go to the mall. They, they couldn't go to the movies. They, they, they got into it with each other pretty regularly. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that they had so many problems that Moses would sit up in a chair and from sun up to sundown, there would be a line of people that would come to him, present their problem, and he would have to judge between them as to what is going to happen. That's what he did every day. Day after day after day. Finally, his father-in-law said, man, you can't do this every day. You need another plan. So, so he got another plan. But I'm, I'm reminded of that scripture because it gives us a glimpse and a picture of human nature. Part of our nature is... We have problems with one another. Work problems, marriage problems, kid problems, money problems, partner problems, um, friend problems, uh, problems with your kid's coach. Um, that's not nice. Be good to your coach. I, I am a, I'm my daughter's coach. Be nice to them. They're, they're trying hard. Uh, but problems with teachers, problems uh, with politicians, problems with bosses. We, we, we just tend to have, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, we tend to get into problems. And if the, solu- the only solution to our problems was to stand in front of one man, we'd be sitting there all day looking for solutions. But we don't have that option. And God knows I don't want to sit in a line all day, every day to deal with the problems that come up in my life. So then the question then becomes, what am I going to do? 
Because these problems happen, because other people are involved and, and, and people just bring their problems when they come. Uh, you know, this is, this is a picture of the church. You have to understand that these are God people and they still have problems. So if you think you're going to find a church that never has a problem and you love everybody all the time, you're going to be looking for a while because there is no perfect church. I think we've got a great one here, but you've got to know people are flawed and we, we have problems. So what are we going to do? How do we deal with the people and the problems that come up? Because they dictate so much about our life. Uh, they, they dictate the quantity and the quality of the relationships that we have. If you can't solve problems with people in your life, you're going to end up a lonely person. It dictates the quantity and the quality of the happiness we experience, of the success that we come to. Much of our... Uh, the things we have in life, the, the good things, the happiness, the joys, the successes, the relationships can be traced back to our ability to be problem solvers. Can I handle the problems that arise with the people in my life without destroying uh, the relationships, without destroying my health? I mean, you know, stress comes from problems with people. Uh, I know that we have financial stresses and health stresses, but listen, we have stress from the people in our lives. When you, when you get into major fights with your spouse over an extended period of time, you watch. You will end up with health problems because the stress in your life affects your health and, and, and other relationships around you. So how do we deal with this without destroying all this stuff in the process? I wonder, as I ask some important questions of myself and of you tonight, how much of the, how much of the stress I have felt this year can be directly connected to people problems? How much of it? How much uh, less stress would I have next year if I could do better at solving problems in my life? If I could so be a problem solver. You see, I'm convinced that Jesus was a master at this. Jesus was a, a master problem solver. Believe it or not, I'm going to tell you a few stories tonight uh, about the life of Jesus, starting right here in chapter 4. And we're going to look at some methods that Jesus used to solve problems. And in all the stories, there's only one piece of it that he actually does anything supernaturally. I, I tell you that because I want you to understand it's easy to write off Jesus as being the Son of God, perfect, ha having power and authority over everything and all things, and so I can't do what Jesus did. But you got to understand, there were secrets to the life of Jesus that weren't connected to him doing a miracle. They were just because he was a wise man. And I think there's some things we could learn from him. So I'll tell you when we get to the supernatural part, the good news about that one supernatural thing is you have access to the same exact power that Jesus utilized. So there's hope even in that. Jesus was incredible at it. Let's, let's take a look at, at about four stories from the life of Jesus that gives us uh, keys or truths that every one of us can apply to become better problem solvers in our life. How many of you are interested tonight? I'm going to continue this message in a couple of weeks. I'll be out next week, uh, but I'm going to continue in a couple of weeks. I'm, the, tonight's message is called, Am I, uh, Am I a Problem Solver? Uh, the next, in two weeks, I'll be speaking to you something along the lines of, I don't have a full title yet, but uh, am I a friction creator? And uh, so we'll, we'll look at a different aspect of this thing. Let's start with the temptations of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, it is clear that the devil is trying to tempt and to trap Jesus. He is trying to present to him a problem that 
Jesus has no way out of except the way the devil wants him to get out, which would then cause him um, to fall into the temptation. Here's the problem. This is a necessary part of the ministry of Jesus because if Jesus couldn't overcome the enemy right here at this moment, how could he give us power and authority to overcome the same enemy? If he couldn't do it, how could he give us the power to do it? Does that make sense? Uh, remember in Luke chapter 9, he spoke to his disciples and, he, and he, he sends them out. But he says, before you go, I am giving you power and authority. Uh, uh, exousia and dunamis power, dynamite power and authority power over demons and, and sicknesses and diseases. So he gave it to his disciples, but he couldn't give it unless he could first do it himself. But we also have to understand something. When we make the decision to take up our cross and follow Jesus, we can guarantee a few things in our life. And one of them is the devil is going to tempt you and try to trap you. So we look to the life of Jesus and we say, what did he do to overcome? And then we realize that he did overcome and he gives us the strength and the faith to know, the courage to know that we too can overcome. What did he do to solve the problems? Uh, the first problem he, he see, we see here is a hunger problem. Jesus has been led by the Spirit for 40 days and 40 nights. Notice in, in, in verse 2, uh, he, uh, or verse, verse 1, He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Ask yourself this question. Are there problems in my life that God put there for a specific reason? Jesus isn't mad at the devil right here because he knows he was led by the Spirit for this purpose. Here's what he says. He hasn't eaten in 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I've never fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Have anybody fasted that long in here? I haven't. One of these days, it's on my bucket list. It's not something I'm just dying to do. But I do want to do do that for 40 days and 40 nights. But notice what he says here. I, I love this. About, about this verse. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now the Bible doesn't say he was hungry while he was fasting, which is, which is fascinating to me. Uh, but I believe it speaks to the power of the grace of God. I believe that the grace of God was on Jesus. And it's not that he didn't want to eat, but he was apparently not hungry enough for Matthew to write he was hungry. Uh, so that only means, because you know, as humans... Listen, man, I don't make it four hours without getting hungry, much less 40 days and 40 nights. And, and yet Jesus had a grace upon him to fast. But after the fast is over, now he's hungry. Now he says, I've got to have some food. This is important because we can think, well, because the devil's about to fast him, uh, tempt him with food. So you say, well, Jesus wasn't hungry. You know, he's been fasting, he's been praying, the grace of God is upon him, he's lost his appetite. No, 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 no. I assure you he hasn't lost his appetite. Matthew says it right here, he was hungry. Is there any question about whether or not Jesus was hungry? Jesus was hungry. So the enemy attacks his hunger, a perceived weakness. He says, if you are the son of God, then turn these stones to bread. So here's the problem. For him to, be, to really be the son of God, this, this is the problem that is presented to him. If you are. So if you're, if you're, I want you to prove this to me, Satan says. If you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. But I don't think you're the son of God. I don't think you can do it. He's baiting him, 
right? So here's the predicament that Jesus now has. If he turns the stones into bread, yes, it proves he is the son of God, but he also falls into temptation and the trap of the enemy. So it's a lose for Jesus. Yes, he wins in proving that he's the son of God, but he loses to the trap of the enemy. So, so what does he do? If, if he doesn't, you know, turn the stones into bread, then the devil's going to say, well, you're obviously not the son of God. It looks like a, a, a problem with no way out. But Jesus changes the subject. In verse, verse 4, the, de- the devil's talking about food. The, the devil, devil's talking about him being hungry. The devil's talking about stones and bread. But Jesus changes the subject and he turns it to Scripture. The devil's talking about the problem and Jesus is talking about the Word of God. Here's the first key in being a problem solver like Jesus is to utilize, to know and study and utilize the Word of God in your life. The answers are in the book. Yes, you have to find them. Yes, you may have to get you a topical Bible to find them all. Or a good search engine or a call a pastor or an elder. But the answers are in the book. So Jesus said, this seems to be a problem. But it's not a problem because the first thing that he did was turn to Scripture. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He took the subject off of the problem and made the subject Scripture. The problems that you're dealing with right now, have you changed the subject from, script, from, from the problem to the scripture? What are you talking about? Are, are you talking about what people said, what happened, what people meant, what they didn't do? Are you, are you talking about how people treated you or are you talking about what the Bible says? You want to be a problem solver like Jesus, talk about what the Bible says. So the devil, he gets smart right here. The next thing is, he says, fine, Jesus, you're going to fight Scripture. I can, I can fight Scripture with Scripture. So he takes him up to a high place, and, he's, and he quotes him Scripture because he says, listen, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. I'm in verse 5 now. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, you need to understand something here. The devil didn't make these words up. These words are direct quotes from the Word of God. So Jesus changes the subject to, to the Scripture, to the Word of God. The devil says, fine, I can, I can work with that too. And he's, he, uses, he tries to use the Word of God against Jesus. He says, jump, because the angels will catch you. They have to catch you, unless uh, you dash your foot against a stone. You, they, they have to bear you up. But now Jesus is going to do something different. Watch what he says. He goes again to Scripture, and he says, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. I want you to note something here. Does Jesus argue with the scripture that the devil presented? No. What Jesus does is offers a higher principle. A higher principle. Yes, you're right. I could jump and, and the angels would catch me. That is truth. But here's the higher principle, Satan. You don't tempt the Lord your God. So I have to, go by the, I have to live by the higher principle. In your life, there are all types of rules, laws, rules, principles. Our government is full of them. Your life is full of them. We all have them. We have higher principles. But Jesus is teaching us know the highest principles and live by those. 
was because what we tend to do is we will hold on to principles that don't really matter and forsake principles that make all the difference in the world. Could Jesus jump off? Of course he could. But in jumping, he would violate the higher principle in tempting the Lord your God. So the, the, the question is, do I know and live according to the highest principles in my life? When I'm solving problems, to find solutions, I have to go to the highest principles. Yes, I could do this. I could treat this person this way. But the higher principle is I'm supposed to love and honor and respect. Yes, my boss treated me wrong. And I have every right to yell and scream and buck and kick. But the higher principle is the word of God teaches to honor those in authority. Doesn't mean we have to go along with what they say all the time. But we do have to honor. So the higher principle is honor. Are you with me? So it's a, it's a, the second lesson that Jesus is teaching is uh, to go to the higher principle. Third attempt, his final attempt here, verse 8. He takes him again up to an exceedingly high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, I'll give you all of these things if you fall down and worship me. The devil's now given up on using scripture because that's backfired. So he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms if you just worship me. And Jesus, one more time, goes to scripture and says, I can only worship and serve the Lord. That's all I can do. So the the third principle is to make sure that God is first in our life. Whatever happens, whatever's going on, wherever life takes us and, and leads us, we have to make sure that God is first, that we are worshiping him and him alone. So what can we learn from these encounters? In every situation, go to the word of God. There are solutions in it, but you have to find them and utilize them. Uh, secondly, it's not just enough to be able to quote scripture. But the question is, can you live scripture when the devil is trying to tempt you? Make sure you stick to your higher principles. Uh, and finally, uh, make sure you know where your worship is. Jesus said it like this. Uh, he said, what good does it profit a man if he were to save his life but lose his soul? Right? I didn't quote that exactly right, but you get the point. What, 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 is it, what does it profit? So what you gain the whole world but you lose your soul. Why? Because the world and our life are temporal, but our soul is eternal. The higher principle is... Make sure you're taking care of your soul. Let's move forward now. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, uh, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent him their disciples with the Rodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Uh, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about people. What that means is he treats everybody the same. So he doesn't say, well, you're rich and you're poor, so I'm going to teach, teach, treat the rich person better than the poor person. He treats everybody the same. That, that's what they're saying about Jesus. They're using a little flattery to butter Jesus up in order to catch him in a trap. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness. Here is the only instance, and we'll come back to this, uh, uh, that I'm going to show you today where Jesus used a supernatural gift right here when he perceived their wickedness. He says, why do you test me, you hypocrites? 
Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is, is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Here's your solution. Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in these verses of Scripture, and in the next set that I'm going to read you, They are trying to trick Jesus. They are trying to present Jesus with problems that he seemingly has no way out. Similar to what the devil did with Jesus in in the desert, in the wilderness. So people are coming to him. And as they see it, the worst thing that can happen, or, or, or if Jesus says yes, it creates a problem. If he says no, it creates a problem. So the Pharisees, they're asking this question, Jesus do you pay taxes to Caesar? Now, this seems like an obvious question. How many of us pay taxes in the room? Like it or hate it? I think hopefully we all pay taxes of one kind or another. Uh, so this is like, for Americans, like, why is this a problem? Well, let's go to the root of it. Um, the coin, the denarius that they gave Jesus when he asked for the coin, he said, show me the tax money. He's sp- speaking specifically of a, a, a tax called the poll tax, the poll tax, and it's a specific money. Uh, this was very important why they were talking about this money and why he was showing it. Because the, the tax money, the poll tax money, uh, went to do some things and pay for some things, um, but it showed the Jewish people that the Romans who were in charge thought that they owned the Jews. So this poll tax represented the, the, the idea that the Romans owned the Jews and everything in Israel. We own it all. We'll do it with, with it what we will. We'll make you pay this. We don't even care. The poll tax was a flat tax. They didn't care who you were, what you were. If you had it or you didn't have it, you had to pay this tax because we own you. The second thing about this was on the coin was the, the picture of, of the Caesar of the day. And the inscription underneath it literally said, Son of God, on it. Because they worshipped Caesar as if he were a God or the Son of God. So now, here is this problem. Uh, If Jesus says, pay the tax, he is is then, in their mind, saying, um, well... You can, you're, you're worshiping Caesar by using this money. This money was the epitome of evil in the Jewish world. This specific coin. Not just any coin, but this specific coin. As a matter of fact, you couldn't use this coin when you came to the temple. You couldn't use this coin to uh, purchase your sacrifice or to give to the church or anything like that. Or to pay your temple tax. You were not allowed to use this money because it was considered to be evil. So this is why in Matthew 20, in the 21st chapter, you remember when Jesus comes in and turns over the money changing tables and kicks them in with the bullwhip and the whole deal? Do you remember that story? The reason why is because what they were doing was crooked men who called themselves men of God and and whatnot were going to the court of of Gentiles and they were exchanging uh, this denarius that was an evil money for the temple coins, which was supposed to be um, good money. So you can use this money... To, to do your business at the temple. But you, but you can't use your Daenerys. You can't use your Roman money. So you have to exchange it. Well, okay, no problem. You have to exchange the money. But what they were doing was they were cheating the people of God. 
So they were charging them absorbently high interest rates or, or, or exchange rates to change over the money uh, and force them to use the temple money to sacrifice and worship God. But you had, you had to exchange it. But while you exchange it, we're going to make tons of money off of you. you. You get a picture of why Jesus was a little upset with this. In the church, crooking the people of God in the temple of God. He was not happy. There's much more to that story. But th- this, is, this is the money that Jesus was speaking of. So now... Uh, if, if he says, pay what is, uh, pay your taxes, then he is saying, yeah, this is right. This money is not evil. It's good. Caesar is God and let's worship him. And what would the response to that would be? He would upset all of his Jewish followers. Uh, he would turn them against him and the, uh, Herodians and the Pharisees were ex- fully expecting them to lynch Jesus right there on, on the spot. They're okay with that. If you're an enemy of, with Jesus, this is a good idea. Because the flip side of it is, if Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes. It's a simple yes or no question, Jesus. Do you pay your taxes or do you not? If he doesn't pay his taxes, the problem now is he is going against the Romans. Uh, and he could actually be brought before the Roman governor on a charge of sedition with the penalty of death. And you say, well, they wouldn't kill Jesus for saying this. Absolutely. Because just a few years before, in the, in the year 6 AD, there was a, a, a Jewish, a Galilean named Judas, not Judas of Iscariot, but another man named Judas from Galilee who had led a tax revolt with this same exact coin. And, and many had already been killed over this issue. And the Romans were serious about about it and they would kill you on the spot. So now here's Jesus's predicament. If I say pay the taxes, I'm going to get lynched by the Jewish people. If I say don't pay the taxes, I'm going to get brought before the governor and there and the governor is going to kill me. Does this sound like a problem to you? But Jesus found a solution where there seemed to be none. Because what Jesus did, he didn't choose between two solutions. Jesus attacked the validity of the problem. There are problems in our life that appear to be problems, but when you really take a closer look, are not problems at all. Because these people were coming to Jesus and creating a problem. You can only have it one way or the other. But Jesus called them hypocrites. You know why? number of reasons why. One of them is this. He said, show me the coin. And they pulled it out of their own pocket where they had just exchanged it and made money off of it at the temple. They were clearly using the money. So they didn't really see as big of a problem with it as they said that they did. So they were making a bigger issue out of something that wasn't the issue. Taxes aren't unlawful in the eyes of God. Caesar's in authority, so pay your taxes. Caesar wouldn't be there much longer. But the principle still applies. Pay your taxes. Render under Caesar. Render under the person or the group of people in authority that which is theirs. But render under God which is that which is God. And so Jesus was saying, listen, what belongs to the Lord and what belongs to, the, to Caesar are two separate things. What belongs to the Lord? You belong to the Lord. What belongs to the Lord? The first 10% of all your increase. So pay, render unto the Lord that which is the Lord's, but, but render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. These issues aren't at odds, and that's what Jesus went to. He looked at the core of the problem and said, there is not really an issue here. Everything is okay. You guys are making a problem where there is no problem. How many things in your life, if you were to really stop and, and quit looking at the only options that seem available, but really look at the problem, would you say, I don't know that we're that far apart on this thing. 
But you know, when people get to fighting, it's really about the fight and less about what they're fighting about. You ever been in a place where you were fighting with somebody so long, you finally stop and go, what were we fighting about again? Because it's been about the fight and not about the real problem. Being an effective problem solver is about seeing the real issue. This is what Jesus said. You've heard the saying, the issue is not really the issue. You've heard that saying before, the the issue is not really the issue. Why? Because there's something deeper going on. And Jesus looked at deeper and found the truth. Many things that appeared to be conflicts weren't, and they aren't in our lives either. So let's make sure the issue is worth fighting over. Again here, Jesus perceived. The one time in in these verses I'm showing you where Jesus used something supernatural. He perceived, he discerned their wickedness. He discerned that the problem wasn't really the issue, that the issue was they wanted him dead and gone. So they made a problem that wasn't really a problem. They created it to get him out. But he perceived this. This is called discernment. And here is the good news. 1 Corinthians chapters 10, 11, and 12, right through here, Paul teaches us about the nine extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit. Gifts that you and I have access to in our life when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. One of them is the gift of discernment. So here's the good news. The one time in these scriptures that Jesus used something supernatural, you, when you have the Holy Spirit at work in your life, you have the gift of discernment, the gift to be able to see beneath the issue of what's really going on, the gift to be able to look deeper and see what is right, what is of God, and what is not right, and what is not of God. You have that gift in your life, and you need to know it. That's the good news. Well, let's look now at the Sadducees. The same day the Sadducees, who who say there is no resurrection... Um, they came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, and even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. So here's what he's saying. In the law of Moses, there's a law that says uh, if, if a man dies and he's married, his brother marries the wife, has children, and they become the descendants of that man. This is, this is the law. This is what you had to do. If the second brother died, it went to the next brother. If that brother died, it went to the next brother. And the wife just keeps, keeps getting passed all the way down. So in this made-up illustration that they bring to Jesus, there are seven brothers. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> uh, there are seven brothers who all end up marrying the same woman. They all end up having kids with her. They all... Uh, they, they all uh, had her, is what the Bible says, okay, uh, in, in verse 28. Uh, so they've all died. Now she's dead. Now they're in the resurrection. Whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. So now who does she belong to? This is a mess. Here's what makes the problem worse. The Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection, Okay, they don't even believe in it. So they make up this problem to catch Jesus, and they don't even believe in the resurrection. And Jesus answers and said to them, I love this, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Here's what Jesus did. He recognized ignorance when he saw it. 
He looked at the Sadducees and says, you are smart men, but you have no clue what you're talking about. You don't even believe in the resurrection. So why are you trying to catch me in something about the resurrection? Because you don't even believe in it. Your illustration makes no sense because you don't understand the resurrection. You don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. So I'm not going to fight with you because you don't get it in the first place. Ignorance. Let me ask you this question. How many problems that you have dealt with in your life can be traced back to ignorance on one part of, or the other? Or maybe all of them at the same time. I don't mean stupidity. I don't mean, I don't mean stupid people. We all got stupid people in our life. Okay, Don't be naming no names. When we look into the person next to you, you know, st- sometimes stupidity is what it is. John, uh, John Wayne said, life's tough. It's even tougher when you're stupid. <laughs> um, uh, but I'm talking about ignorance here. Ignorance is a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding. I'm not attacking. These were smart men that Jesus was talking to. They were incredibly, incredibly smart. They knew the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, backwards and forwards and could quote it to you. As a matter of fact, in Jesus' response to them, he brings to them a response out of the Torah because he knew they wouldn't accept anything else. So his response is in verse 32, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Jacob, Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob, I am the God of the... uh, He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. This is his response. I I don't want to take a lot of time to go through the response for you, but I I want you to understand these were intelligent men, but they were ignorant on this subject. Every person in this room is an intelligent person, but there are subjects in our lives when we are ignorant. We just don't know. I know a lot of things about a lot of things, but there are some things I don't know anything about. I I, I am not an engine guy. There are people I don't know that can break down an engine and how it works and this part and that part. And I'm just like, "Mm -mm." I'm taking it to somebody that knows. (laughs) Because I don't know, right? Because I, I, am, I am ignorant. I, I want to get in my truck, turn it on. I want to put it in reverse, hit the gas, and I want to back out of my driveway and go down the highway. And I don't care what's firing and what's not firing. I just want it to work. Is anybody else like that? I know you're all car people. and I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I got enough things that I need to know about. That is not one of them. I just need to know people that know, <laughs> Right? But here's the deal. We all have things that, we're, that we, we are areas that we are ignorant, and that is okay. That doesn't make you stupid. That doesn't make you less than intelligent. That just means that you can't know everything about everything. But we do have to be able to recognize ignorance when it's talking to us. Because we get to fighting with people and arguing about subjects. And, and if we would stop and listen for a moment, we would say, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. You don't, have the, you don't have your facts straight. You're mad at me about something that I never even did. You ever been there before? Been, been getting, you've been getting yelled at and yelled at, and, and you're trying to interrupt, and they won't let you talk. And you're trying to, hey, hey, can I tell you? No, no, I don't want to hear your side of the story. Okay. And so you just sit there and take it, and finally you go, I wasn't even there when it happened. But they don't have their facts straight. Um. We have to recognize ignorance and we have to know the facts. This is what Jesus did. It's one of the keys to being a good problem solver is recognizing the truth of the situation. Let's move forward. I got 10 minutes. I'm almost done. Are you okay tonight? John chapter 8. John chapter 8, I'll tell you the story really quickly. They have a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. They bring her to Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees. They brought her to him. They throw her at his feet. And they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the very act. 
And he says, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Notice in verse 6, they were testing him that they might have something to accuse him. Again, they're, they're doing the same thing that they did in Matthew chapter 22, just a different way to go about it. Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of, the, of adultery. Um, what are you going to do about it? There's a couple of things that you need to know. In the law of Moses, the law of Moses clearly said if you were caught in the act of adultery, caught in the act, you had to be stoned and executed right there on the spot. If you're caught in the act. If we were to enact that law in America, <laughs> our divorce rate would be much lower, I'm convinced of it. I'm not recommending it. <laughs> But here was the problem, and not you say, well, man, they must have killed a lot of people. Not really, because the act of adultery is a private sin. You didn't typically commit adultery right out in the middle of the, the plaza in the middle of the city, right? It's not much different than today, okay? They, secret places, hidden places, rendezvous, okay? And that's where, the, so it was, a, it was a private act, so it was very difficult to catch. And the law said, if you didn't have witnesses that actually saw it happening. They didn't see you coming out of the hotel room. They didn't see you going in the hotel room. They had to be in the hotel room seeing it happen, peeking through the window. (coughs) That was the only way that she could be stoned. Okay? Now, you put all this together. You see a couple of problems. Notice they didn't bring the man. You can't have adultery without at least two people. So why did they only bring one to Jesus? Why did they only bring her? Theologians believe that the man was standing in the crowd, maybe even the one that threw her at the feet of Jesus, because someone had to be there when they caught her in the act. And he had to be there to accuse her. So historians believe that it was literally the man who was committing adultery with her that brought her to the feet of Jesus and threw her down. Now this creates some problems. Jesus, what do you do? Jesus is just chilling, drawing, you know, castles in the sand. And he asks this question. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Here's the other thing that you need to know. The person who caught them was supposed to throw the first stone. It was customary for the person who caught them to throw the first stone. So this is what Jesus is saying. Let the man who caught her throw the first stone. Oh, and by the way, he needs to be without sin. This creates a problem. He can't because he was in the middle of the sin with her. So Jesus provides a solution throw the first stone have at it it's your right it's the law throw the first stone but you got to be without sin too they can't do it what was jesus drawing on the ground there are many theories as to what he was drawing on the ground but uh, most of our of our theologians tell us that jesus was most likely writing names or clues of some kind in the sand that were that were pointing to people in the audience, people in the crowd, who had committed the very same sin. So, maybe he's writing uh, a name in the sand, and he says, this is Josephus here, and he's ready to throw a stone. And he writes Josephus, and then he writes the name of the woman he has already committed adultery with. Cleopatras. Whatever her name was, right? And so as he's writing... Suddenly people say, you know what? 
I think it's time for me to go. I think I'm done with this party. I get your point, Jesus. And they turn and they begin to walk away. Now, here is what I want to show you in this scripture. First thing is that Jesus forced them to take a look at themselves. It is so easy in our life to get to throwing stones at other people. But it is difficult to look at ourselves. You may have every right to be mad at them for what they've done in this situation, but have you ever done this or something similar in your life? And did you want mercy? They had to take a look at themselves. Jesus changed the focus from the one being accused and he forced them to look at themselves. He forced them to ask questions. Ask yourself these questions when you're going through problems. What have I done to contribute to the problem? Have I done this to someone else before? I was talking to a pastor friend of mine just here recently who when they were kind of the number two person, uh, I walked them through some issues that they were having. Now they're the number one person. And an almost identical situation is happening with their number two. And they're on the other side of the deal. And I had to remind them, do you remember these conversations that we had? Why don't you treat them like you wanted to be treated in the first place? I loaned a, a lot of money to a, a family member one time. They didn't pay it for a long time. It bothered me, frustrated me, caused major rifts in our, in our family. Finally, I forgave the debt. Wasn't the most popular decision, but I forgave the debt. Why? Because I realized I owe people money. And how can I demand money when I know they don't have it, and yet I have not paid back the money I owe? So I forgave the debt. Jesus forced them to look at themselves, He forced them to look inwards. I'm going to close with this. They're all gone, from the oldest even to the last, and Jesus is left alone with the woman standing in the midst. Verse 10, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Does no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Here's the last principle that I want to show you. The only person in the entire group who could actually pick up a stone and throw it. The only person who hadn't sinned, who, who was spotless and blameless, was Jesus. He was the only one. He had every right to pick up the stone and throw it. And yet, he chose forgiveness. He chose grace. He chose mercy. This is a serious challenge as we live our lives. Will we forgive even when we have the right to judge and condemn and stone? Can we forgive? Because that's what Jesus did. And it is one of the things that made him the ultimate problem solver in his life. Because Jesus chose to forgive even when he had the right not to. There are times in your life when people will come against you and they will be totally in the wrong and you will be totally in the right and you have a decision to make, what will I do? Jesus made his decision very clearly. I choose to forgive. This is what his whole life was about. You've got to understand, his whole mission on the earth was to offer forgiveness of sins to people. So why would he choose this moment to judge? 
Sure, you may have the right to be offended and upset, you the, the right to judge and condemn, but is that, is that what you should do? I wonder who in our lives, as we look back over the problems we've had, who should we have forgiven? Just forgiven. Maybe we didn't have to, but maybe we just should have. Who should we forgive right now? The problem's going on. Maybe we should forgive someone right now. It would change the outcome of the story. So let's recap, recap and we're going to close. I've got one minute. Number one, go to the Word of God. Number two, remember the higher principles. Number three, make sure that God is first in everything. Number four, make sure the question is worth fighting for or dividing over. And, and find out, are you really at odds over it? Number five, make sure you know the truth and have the facts. Examine the motives. You know good people mess up. Good people with good intentions mess up. Make sure you look at people's motives and their intentions. They don't mean to, but they do. Number six, examine ourselves first. If you want mercy, sow mercy. The, the kingdom of God works off of sowing and reaping, not reaping and sowing. So sow, sir, sow mercy so that you might reap mercy. Sow grace so that you might reap grace. If you sow judgment, understand you will reap judgment. If you sow condemnation... You don't reap goodness, you reap condemnation. So mercy and so grace. And then finally, forgive even when you don't have to. Be the first to forgive and the first to ask for forgiveness. Would you stand with me today? I want to challenge you to be a problem solver in your life. I don't want you to be people that blow problems up, that throw gasoline on the fire per se, but I want you to be a people that are problem solvers. You know how you can tell if you're a problem solver? Do people come to you with their problems? Problems that have nothing to do with you. Do they ask your advice? Well, you know, help me understand this. Help me see this. I'm not talking about do they just come to you and vent. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about do they come to you and ask your advice to help you with the problem that they have. Be a problem solver. Be a problem solver.